Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. Today's episode is a conversation about taking the animal out of the food system. Typically, when we think of plant-based products, what comes to my mind anyways are veggie burgers or soy milk. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. With investors and consumers looking for ways to eat more sustainably, companies are leveraging technological innovations to create vegan products that satisfy omnivores like you and me, or at least like me. We've got things like vegan eggs made from mung beans, lab-grown foie gras, There's a whole lot of investment in this space. And look, you don't need to be up to date with Michael Pollan's literature to know that the food system is broken. So how are we going to fix it? To get into that, I'm chatting with Matteo Parenti, the director of growth at Blue Horizon, a venture capital firm that invests in food startups. Blue Horizon was one of the first to invest in Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, and they funded companies that make plant-based seafood, lab-grown breast milk for infants, a lot of different things. Blue Horizon is based in Switzerland, in Zurich, and that's where Matteo and I met. He and I attended the same school for our MBA. We both went to INSEAD, and he previously worked in investment banking, and he's an omnivore himself. He talks about loving steaks and not being afraid to eat at McDonald's. So I wanted to chat with him about what it takes to bring these businesses to the market. And more than anything, how these entrepreneurs and venture capitalists think about adopting these products on a cultural level. I mean, think about it. Meat is something that's served all around the world as a way to celebrate. It's like the focal point of a meal and not just like turkey at Thanksgiving, right? I worked at Houston's restaurant and we served filet mignon, ribeyes, prime rib. And when people would come in for business meetings, like they would come to us or they'd go to a steakhouse. It's just one of those things. And getting people on a mass market level to adopt these plant-based or lab-grown proteins It's going to take work and it's getting people to think about their meal differently. And for a company like Blue Horizon, it's more than just nailing the texture, flavor, scent, and color of these alternatives. It's it's like on a philosophical level, how do we get people to really embrace these things? There's a whole lot for us to get into. And I really think it was a great conversation, but I'll let you be the judge. We'll jump right in. Maybe for listeners that aren't familiar with Blue Horizon's work, Do you want to give us just a very high-level understanding of what Blue Horizon does? Yeah, sure. So, who are we? I mean, we we started six years ago. We're we're uh, you're in kindergarten. You're 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 starting school. Yeah, exactly. So, yes, I mean that was before my time, obviously, at Blue Horizon. So, I I joined Blue Horizon two years ago. But where we how we started is six years ago, really focusing on the alternative protein market with a mission to take the animal out of the food chain. The reason being that our 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 nature is to look at everything from what we call dual impact. Um, so we look at everything from a impact side, ESG side. Um, it's very important for us to have impact with every investment we do, and we measure it in different ways, but also um, offer financial returns to investors. Why do we do that? It's because, you know, the way I see it as well, and many of the companies see it, is to have real impact, you have to really allocate or reallocate capital in the market. And you only do that if you offer investors, you know, whether it's pension funds, whether it's high net worth individuals, et cetera, whoever it is, the financial returns to keep reinvesting. So I think it's quite quite important to see us as an impact investor in that sense. We started off with being, you know, mission-driven in terms of 
getting the animal in the food chain. What does that mean? We want to, you know, look at alternative proteins when it comes to meat, when it comes to dairy, when it comes to seafood, when it comes to egg. We've done more than 70 investments uh, in the space. Um, we started with very small tickets, have grown since then, and really grown with the market because we were kind of, you know, the first investors in Impossible Beyond, early investors, I don't know if we're really the first ones, but very early investors in that space um, when those companies were still young. Um, so we really grew with the market and that's why we're also we're very connected with the market. We don't just help companies that we invest in, we help a lot of companies just because we really, we have a real drive to get this market and move this market forward. Today, what I would say, what, what we look at is the alternative foods. So we look at the food system. So not just alternative protein itself, but the entire food system. What does that mean? It's really going from the germplasm from a seed, which goes more into the area of ag tech, um, all the way down to, to packaging, right? So why do we do that? Because in order to have alternative proteins, which are sustainable, you have to look at the entire food chain and entire value chain. So when you look at alternative protein, which I would say, you know, is our core business and has been for many years, it's, it's about plant-based foods, which is just, you know, traditional beyond meat um, or, 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 you know, an oatly. Then you have fermentation-based foods, which can, you know, we redivide really it into two different types, which is one is biomass fermentation. You know, maybe if some people know corn, which basically the... Corn the band or corn food product? Corn the burger, the alternative burgers in, um, in the UK it's from. And um, that's really kind of, you eat the final product. That you eat actually the biomass. Um, and there's many other products out there coming to market and already on the market. And then you have precision fermentation, which is really what, I mean, the best example probably is, is impossible on that one. Impossible, the reason why it tastes, you know, for some people so much better or so much more like real meat is because they have a protein in there called heme. And heme is the protein that makes red meat look like red meat, cook like red meat, smell, taste like red meat. But it's, it's a protein that comes from an animal. However, what you can do with precision fermentation is you can gene edit microorganisms and these are bacteria fungi yeast in a way that when they ferment they produce heme so it's actually one-to-one -one the same protein but it's not it's not it doesn't come from a living you know living cow or or a living pig or whoever you know that protein might come from and and then you integrate that into the into the plant-based burger and that kind of gives you the the additional or the, or the ex exceptional taste and then the third technology is is cell culture obviously a lot of people are aware of or aware that it is, exists I actually went to Israel three months ago and I tasted my personal first cell cultured meat. What kind of meat was it? It was chicken. So it was chicken. It was chicken fat. Um, and so, you know, big theaters around cell culture is, you know, everyone thinks that we're going to grow Petri dish steaks. And, and that's really not what we're going after. What I think also Blue Rise and I think most companies out there as well, we want to go after the mass market. Um, there's no point trying to like, you know, also when you go to alternative seafood, there's no point going after the specialized sushi because there's so many other you know fish sticks all that stuff that is just so easy to to mimic or easy but easier to mimic that we you know that, that's kind of where we want to focus on now rather than going to you know but i think that's kind of like a a chicken or the egg you know to use a food analogy right is like yeah. with all of this initial investment that you're putting into it some people would say go after that highly specialized product i know there's a company doing like an alternative to foie gras right there are people doing yeah. those higher end things with the amount of investment that you have to put into it why go after those more mass market things like fish sticks why not to play devil's advocate go for that more specialized product 
Yeah, I mean, look, everyone has a different strategy and everyone has a different mission and, 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 and the dream of what they want to do. Um, I think, you know, often when you go off to the very high end products, there's also, um, you know, steps on the, on the way there that, that can be quite helpful, right? Um, you know, like, like Formula One, <laughs> they have like the high specialized technology in there, but a lot of those things can get used into normal cars mm. as well. So, you know, it's, it's not like they don't have any benefit to the broader mass market either. But yeah, so the, the one I tasted was, was was chicken fat. And, you know, I think a real eye-opener for people is to understand that with about 10% of chicken fat uh, cell-cultured and you integrate it into a plant-based sausage or plant-based patty, that really is enough to give you the real taste and the real texture and the mouthfeel of a real, of a real thing. So, uh, you know, I, I see a big opportunity in hybrid products because I don't think we'll ever get there from the price point. I mean, it's going to be difficult, at least another 10 years, to, to have like fully cell-cultured products. But hybrid products are really something in between that really can have the same kind of effect, but at a very, very low um, price point. You, you mentioned a couple of qualities there that I think are really important. You were talking about taste, you were talking about texture, you were talking about color. And achieving parity in each of those different categories, it probably isn't all going to happen at the exact same time. When you look at these different companies, are there certain metrics that are more important than others? Or is it kind of for each business, for each protein, for each product, they're all on their own kind of trajectory there? Where are the biggest hurdles? Yeah, no, it's a good question because we've done a lot of research around that. So number one is taste. <laughs> no matter how cheap a product is, no one will eat it if, it's, if, it, if it tastes like shit, right? Unless they're really drunk and it's like two in the morning. I'm sure you've had your fair share of kebabs. Exactly, along the way exactly. Well. And, that, and then again, you know, you could say that that's mass market, <laughs> but you know, it's not really what we're going after. And, um, and so taste is really important. I think, I think it also changes. I think what, what's, what I find very interesting, and you know, my background is in, in, in consumer packaged goods uh, when I did M&A back in, back in New York. And it's consumers, you know, they hire my products quite quickly. And then, you know, and, and then, but the preference change over time, right? But I think the two ones that it will always be there is taste, like I said, and price, right? Um, and it's funny because like two years ago when I joined Blue Horizon, you know, a big, big part of it was also the ESG angle for alternative protein, let's say, right? Like how, how impactful is it, et cetera. That's still very important. But again, that's niche, right? That's, that's, there's a certain group of people that want to go after that. And, you know, the, the, way, the way I see it now with, you know, inflation and looming recession, et cetera, two years ago, a lot of people cared about, or three years ago, you know, during COVID, a lot of people were very conscious of health, very conscious of ESG impact, et cetera. Now, however, that, you know, everything is getting more expensive, uh, you know, alternative proteins are still more expensive on some levels than, than the real protein. Some of aren't, some, some, you know, some, you know, for example, private label products already are at parity um, in terms of price. But overall, they're still more expensive. And, and really what we see now is people care about price because they care about themselves <laughs> even more than they care about the animal, right, that they're killing. Yeah. Um, you know, that's very, in a, you know, very broadly said. And, you know, there's definitely nuances to that. But uh, so price is really something that is key for us to, to get to. Then, you know, obviously there's, there's health. So I would say, you know, two years ago it was more about, you know, taste, sustainability, price and health. And now it's really about taste slash price, health, and then animal and impact, mm. right? So that, that is already a big change because a lot of people went out there being, you know, we're the most impactful one for the world. That's great. But people don't, people need more than that. And, and where we are today, you know, products are great, but, you know, we have the privilege that we look at these companies quite early 
And so I've tasted products that, you know, will come pro to market in two years. And those, you know, they're going to be game changers, but they're not there yet in terms of scalability, in terms of price. So a lot of things that we see today, you know, and I think I myself is sometimes disappointed when I go to places and eat alternative proteins because they're just not there yet in terms of price parity, in terms of taste parity, texture parity, smell parity. But it's a young industry, these alternative proteins. So we got to give it, have some patience and also, you know, faith that it, it will, you know, change. And, and it's a real danger for us in the market right now, because I think if you once had a bad experience, um, you know, you're not going to taste another sausage from beyond from two years. I would say. Yeah, for sure. When you talked about your own experiences with these products, was that in the context of going into a grocery store or having it at a restaurant, whether it was fast casual or, you know, something more luxury level? Both. I think when you go on luxury level, I think you know, they will make it taste nice. <laughs> so there's a great restaurant here in Zurich, for example, Neutavana, which does incredible, um, you know, vegan menus. And, you know, it just tastes incredible. But, you know, and then there's 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 just a variety. And I don't know, you know, whether you've gone to a supermarket and looked at different products, but there's some really incredible products. Like there's products which have three ingredients in there, taste great, and 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 you really enjoy them. Then you go, you know, just one package to the left, there's a product with 15 ingredients, you know, beyond being one of those products, which still has a lot of ingredients in them. And um, and and it's just terrible, right? I'm not saying beyond the terrible, I'm yeah. just saying like the, the, the product could be terrible. And it's just really about, you know, some products coming to market we shouldn't have probably, um, and probably will will not see anymore in the future. I think the context um, is so hard though, right? Like the way in which you choose to present these products because for a lot of people, like you said, it's their first time experiencing this. Uh, something that immediately comes to my mind is like 11 Madison Park, right? Number one restaurant in the world at a certain point, chef pivots to do an entirely vegan menu. And what so many people struggled with was understanding how this Michelin starred $400 meal was quote unquote worthy of being vegan. And I think that's always the challenge, right? Is mm -hmm. do people want mimicry? Do they want something that tastes like an animal product or do they want something that's like straight up a vegetable and tastes like a vegetable? Yeah. And I, I think that's a great question because I think that's kind of goes fundamentally into what, what we're doing. And, and just to put it in perspective again, you know, we look at, we don't just focus on alternative proteins. So we look at a lot of it is kind of the upstream, like one of our investment does, you know, uh, gene editing for tropical plants. So we look at everything. So a lot of that will play into kind of, do you just want to have a vegetable? Yes, we're working on that as well to make that more sustainable. Can you walk people through how that would work? Like that tropical plant upstreaming, like for people that, I don't know if you can get into it, how far into the process yeah. they are, but I'm sure people would love to hear a bit about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, so there's the banana. Uh, and the banana I'm familiar is, with them. Yeah, exactly. And the banana is basically a clone of each other. So every banana, the Cavendish banana, is it's it's one type. So if there is a disease that kills one banana plant, it will kill probably ninety percent of the banana plants worldwide. And we've had that in I think seventies or eighties, where a whole banana culture got wiped out. That's when the Cavendish banana, the one we know today, yeah, really came, really came, uh, you know, to be the prominent banana. So there's two diseases right now. One is the Panama disease, and one is the Cigatoka disease that are killing all of them. So this company called Tropic Biosciences is actually finding a way to gene edit these bananas in order to be resistant to those two diseases. To the diseases, to resistant to hotter, hotter uh, weather, because a lot of the, even looking at coffee or rice, which they're also looking at, you know, those are being harvested in very cool climates, normally or cooler climates, and now they need to have way high resistance. So those are the kind of things, and it's not GMO, 
and and they have a certification for that because it's actually CRISPR. So basically, we're not adding genes to the organism. We're just making some genes more passive, uh, so more dormant. I, I totally agree that a lot of it is being well, why do we need to, you know, process plants into a mimicking food that looks like an animal-based protein? So I think, you know, and, and again, there's so many nuances between categories, right? If you look at um, dairy, I think there's not a single person who would, who, would, who would argue that, you know, there's a real benefit of, or there's a real traction in having, you know, plant-based dairy out there, which some people actually prefer way more now. Etc. You know, looking at oatly, etc. So I think there, you know, it's, it's quite easy not to not not to go down the route of okay, we're mimicking, but it's actually a, it's just a different product, right? Um, and it's and it's just as good in, in many cases, I think. Then there is the kind of the burger, the sausages, etc., where you are taking peas or soy or you know any kind of ingredient. You know, we see everything from chickpea to lupins to even grasses that are being turned into, for example, duckweed. They're being turned into proteins. I, th- I think there, my, my view on that is going maybe, you know, I'm sounding a broken record, but we're a mass market company. So, you know, trying to force someone in a um, rural area who wants to give his beef, tell him to only eat peas for dinner, right? It, it, it's just difficult. Um, and it's also because there's a lot about convenience of meat products and, and seafood products, just throwing it in a pan, it tastes good, you know, with a bit of salt on it. And there's a lot about culturally around it, right? Protein. Animal proteins, and I'm taking away uh, dairy here and you know, I'll turn to cheese, etc. Seafood and meat is a center of plate item. And people want to see that, right? And it makes you full. It's, you know, protein is what makes you full, right? So all those things and, and people, it's going to be very difficult to create a new tasting profile, a new product, and getting that out and competing against all the meats. So, you know, the strategy is to mimic these meats or these seafoods. But again, where we are today, you know, you tell me like, yeah, but you never get there. We will get there. Like, I'm convinced of it because I've tried to sell cultured meat. I've tried some products, you know, fermentation wise. Yes. Will it be slightly different? Maybe, but it will be the same kind of concept that you have something in the center of pea that you actually enjoy. Yeah. And that will be the right price point because in the end, what we want to get to, and then I'll stop talking because I think I'm rambling a lot today. But in the end, what, what we want is that you go into the supermarket and you see the meat and you see an alternative meat. And they look the same. They, you've tried it once, hopefully, and they taste the same. But the alternative meat is cheaper. And, the, and there's no doubt in my mind that it has to be cheaper. And I'll tell you why. Because it doesn't make sense that something, you know, growing a cow with thousand, you know, thousand liter of water per kilogram of, of beef, the land that you need to use for that, the feed that you need to use for that, it, no matter how efficient your animal farming is, which is, you know, makes it more and more horrible, the more efficient it is, there's no way that that can be cheaper than something that is being made out of plants directly from the field and processed in a way that is sustainable, but also healthy. Right. And look, and I say this really from a, you know, I'm I'm very mission driven. I'm probably very brainwashed because I've been a blue rising for two years, but I really believe in that from a, from a very kind of unit economics point of view and not from a, you know, stop eating meat point of view. It's just, there needs to be a path to, to be more sustainable in the way we eat. Are you a vegetarian yourself? Do you adhere to some of those standards? No, I honestly, I was a big meat eater. Um, when I was, you know, working in banking in, in New York, I probably ate McDonald's three times a week, which is probably exactly the worst possible. Meat. You were McDonald's pilled? I didn't know that. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I was uh, even though. What was your order? Do you remember? Uh, uh, Mac chicken and the cheeseburger were, were my favorites. But you know, it's very strange because also everyone, uh, you know, every time I told, tell it to people, they say, you know, McDonald's in, in in the U.S. is horrible. Actually, McDonald's in Switzerland and stuff is actually pretty. It's not actually that bad. It's it's quite premium. But look, I was a big meat eater mainly because of convenience, maybe, and also because of the, it's the way I grew up. Right, I grew up with meat pretty much every day seafood pretty much every day which is very different you know to our grandparents generation that had meats once a week what was your nona cooking what kind of seafood and meat was she rocking and rolling with i mean the meatloaf on the sunday was kind of what what my what my grandma would do um but she was a terrible cook unfortunately um but you know with my parents it was literally everything everything you can imagine yeah. um and um and so i i i came from that you know, I was the second ever non-vegan hire for Blue Horizon. And I think that's quite important because some people, you know, view us as a vegan company and it's really not true. We have vegans. That's how we started. And that's where it was very important, to be honest, and still is very important because we need to walk the talk, right? We can't, we can't say like, hey, eat this, you know, alternative protein, but actually I'm going home and eating a steak. And I wish I had the strength right now to do become fully vegan because I really believe in what we do. But it's, you know, I, I don't eat meat during the week or seafood during the week or any animal proteins. And when I do eat animal proteins, I make sure that it's worth it. What do I mean with that? You know, if you eat a bolognese, I can give you a bolognese that's alternative protein and you will not feel or taste the difference. And I, I can just promise you that. And every Italian, I'm half Italian, every Italian who, you know, jumps up and down on their chair, like it's just, it's just a fact. And when I, and then when I do eat meat, I, I may, you know, I, I, I really, you know, it sounds very, you know, spiritual, but like, I really make sure that, you know, I, I really enjoy it. Right. And it's worth it. Like I go to a butcher. I don't buy the minced meat of, of, of a supermarket because it's not worth it. But when I go to a restaurant, I make sure it's, you know. If you're going to get the steak, you're going to get the porterhouse or the tenderloin dry aged or the carpaccio. Yeah, something yeah. that is structured, something that is nice. But also, but also the other point is like, I don't, if I go to a pub, I don't get a burger, right? Yeah. I just know it's not the quality that I, that I want to have. And also not the probably the animal treatment that I, that I, that I think is important. The last thing we want or the last thing I want as well, when I talk to people is like, yeah, stop eating meat eat meat but like eat it in a sustainable way and when you can replace it you know I, i'm not even saying eat alternative proteins like i'm not trying to push our products i'm just saying that don't eat meat and don't eat seafood yeah. if you can be fine with eating you know a spaghetti with uh, with tomato sauce that's great as well right that's that's our mission um it's uh, you know it's not about forcing products down people's throats. and when you were talking earlier about kind of the the lack of seasonality with meat, right? Like meat is in season all all year, right? People can go into a grocery mm. store and buy a steak pretty much the entire year. Whereas like if you want fresh strawberries, if you want fresh summer corn, you're getting that in very specific seasons. A movement towards more plant-based products for whether it's dairy or for proteins or for other parts of the food chain, how is seasonality going to play a role there, if at all? That's a good question. I, I don't think it will at all because- in the end, to get these price points right, it, it needs to be off commodity products, right? Soy, peas, etc. There's titles of that. You, you can eat them year round. I mean, one reason why soy is so you know controversial is because apparently there's a lot of deforestation with them. There is, but you know, let me tell you, that's mainly for um, animal feed. But anyway, back to your question. I, I don't think there will be much seasonality for it, to be honest. You were talking about the fact that you're one of two non-vegans currently at Blue Horizon. The second ever non-vegan hire. So we're no we're more non-vegans now as well. Wow, there we go. When when yeah. you talk about when you think about the way in which Blue Horizon chooses to invest in a business, do you guys have at like on site a kitchen 
Do you cook the products when you work with them? What do you look for in a business beyond its potential impact in the larger food system? When you're working with these products, what are you going about? What metrics are you using to kind of gauge whether the business is worth investing in or not? Yeah, sure. I think we look at it with like any other business you would look at, right? We look at we look at you know what kind of what makes it different. What's what's the USP? How defendable is that? What is the growth trajectory of the business? Do we believe in that? What is the management like? You know, what is the value? Um, you know, what's the value that we can create? Because we also want to make sure that we are the right owners or right investors for this company, and we want to make sure that we can add value. So we, you know, we look at, you know, the competitive landscape. We look at everything that you would normally look to make sure that this business is something that has its own legs to run on, to stand on. Um, I think the added very important part for us as a, as a food investor, and I'm excluding a lot of the other stuff that we invest in because we can't just taste it, but it's tasting it. So we have a kitchen at our place. We, we will taste every single product that we invest in, we will, we will taste. Um, it's just so critical. It's so critical as well because we've tasted, I don't know how many hundreds of burgers, how many hundreds of alternative eggs, how many hundreds of you know alternative everything. For us, a lot is, is you know, we, we, the wow effect is gone for us. Um, so, you know, if you, if you give someone, if I give someone from my family, you know, an alternative cheese made out of cashew, uh, cashew nuts, you know, they would go like, wow, this is crazy. This is like the real thing, but it's a wow effect. You know, we, we, we've, we've tried quite a few of them and, and there are very big differences between them. So it's super important for us to understand whether there's a difference in taste, whether it is good, whether the texture is right. And then everything that I mentioned just around it, right? Technology, um, processing. You were talking about cheese there for a second, which I know within Europe, especially there's very strict rules about whether you can call something a Parmesan, where it's from. If something is Machego cheese, it has to be made a certain way with these vegan Mm -hmm. or non-dairy cheeses. I imagine they're being made in the style of a specific do or appellated cheese how do you work around some of those e related restrictions or how do these companies work around those e restrictions yeah we, we don't call it we don't you know we don't call it emmentaler you know or like you know vegan emmentaler we, we vemental femental yeah. <laughs> so we you know we we have a few examples where we call it something different i don't think we want to have the whole you know trademark <laughs> uh, implications it's difficult to get the products on the market already yeah into shelves, et cetera. Not difficult, but like, you know, you need to, you need to educate the, the consumer. And a lot of things is one just changing, having to change names or spending money on lawsuits because the money should be used for something else. So we will work around that. But yeah, the naming is, it's, it's been, it's been a problem. It's been in news a lot as well, right? So like, can we call it, uh, you know, alternative uh, pork if it's not pork, right? Milk, right? And Even just things. the word milk is so controversial in terms of what you can Exactly, use. exactly. So, so it, it, it really depends by region. And, um, and to be very honest, I don't even know the latest on the regulations, but we, we, it hasn't changed much. And, and to be honest, the, the question is more like, it's just such an obvious kind of um, attack by, you know, what I would call a traditional industry, because the consumer should have a choice and, and make it more for diff- difficult for the consumer to understand what's what. Is, is made much more harder by not calling it alternative milk or, or, or pea-based milk or soy-based milk because then he has no reference. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and, you know, well, you talked about working in CPG and so much of that is branding. It's about the way in which you position the product, right? I would yeah. imagine that a lot of these companies that you're investing in put a lot of effort into coming up with the right name or the right package, the right way to present their product to that consumer. Absolutely. And I think a big one is, you know, where to position it in the supermarket. 
right? So we saw a big, big increase in sales once alternative burgers were actually positioned in the meat aisle, right? And not in the vegan or alternative protein aisle. So those kind of things can really help. It is a big topic, but so far we've worked around it and it hasn't had, you know, I wouldn't say the naming of, of, of things or the not naming of things was has been the biggest barrier so far for you today. We, we, we've heard a lot about how Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe and has provided a lot of the wheat, a lot of the grain for other parts of the world. When it comes to a lot of the companies that you're investing in, how has the rupture of Ukraine's uh, grain silos and whatnot, how has that food supply chain impacted a lot of these companies, if at all? No, it has. Obviously, it depends what your input is um, on, on your, when, you, when you produce your product. Um, and I'm not talking, to, to, you know, and here it's not just about alternative proteins uh, or like end products, right? It can be, it can hit us all along the value chain, right? Um, whether it is on the ingredient side, whether it is on the formulation side, or whether it is on the taste profile side, etc. So there's companies going off this, you know, different things there. I think, you know, we've seen, you know, we have, we have one company that just comes to mind um, that actually has benefited from that because they do uh, oil emulsions, produce alternative fats. And, you know, because sunflower oil was going up so high, their solution has actually become cheaper um, than that. So they've benefited from that. But there's a lot of companies that are struggling, you know, food prices isn't the only one. Shortage is one thing, but it's also the prices of everything going up. So that has definitely impacted it because talking to a price parity goal, that doesn't make it any easier. Totally. Um, but, but I think it speaks to what we're trying to do because... Again, our mission is not anymore just to take the animal food chain. We don't touch anything with animals, right? That, that's, that's, that's one thing. But one big thing we're going after is localized production, right? So, I mean, it's scary to think that, you know, one country, I mean, of course, it has one of the most fertile lands, et cetera, but one country, you know, having such an impact on the global food system. And look, we're, we're lucky in, in the Western world because, you know, food probably makes up, and I, I have no idea about the numbers, but a single digit or double low double digit percentage of our income if you go to some of the african countries some of the you know middle eastern countries you know that's that's more than 50 percent or more than 60 percent of their disposable income goes to food right and that's when it's you know it's just so dangerous to have these kind of things and i think you know i'm not the first one to say it you know there was articles in the economist etc about that we will have a big big food shortage by the end of this year and then going into next year and maybe years to come so how do how do we counter you know how do we counter that and that's kind of localized food production right and and you know another example to, with that is you know some of the alternative proteins that you have today they get you know grown in Canada the peas they get shipped to you China uh, processed there into soy or pea isolates shipped back to Europe or US to then be processed into alternative proteins that's not sustainable and that goes back to the whole value chain play we need to look at everything. And can't just say like, oh, just because this burger is alternative, you know, it will save everything. It definitely, it probably will. And it definitely will going forward. But it's also, we can do so much more in terms of, you know, increasing the sustainability across, across, you know, every step along the way. And, you know, one, one, one more thing that I really wanted to touch on was you spent this time living in New York, getting your McDonald's three times a week, working for banks, doing M&A transactions, and then moving to Zurich. And in between that, going to school at INSEAD in France, how has your palate changed? It's gotten a lot more expensive. Um, I think part of that's just being in Zurich. I think part of that is just exactly, like Swiss yeah, things no, cost more. i tell you one thing. One thing I loved about New York is just the variety, right? Yeah. And I think... 
pretty cliche thing to say, but I could go and have dinner for five dollars or two hundred, and 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 just like whatever food I want. So I think you know my palate there was just try everything, and it would be so different every single time. Having said that, I'm 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 a guy of you know I like diversity and I like trying new things in my life, but when it comes to food, I like to be quite you know I I have I could eat tomato pasta every single day, and actually when I worked at the bank. Uh, you know, we had to we had to order food. I remember this. You know, eating out of plastic container every night. But I would order food. You know, I think I ate tomato pasta for for six months. Um, and and you know, I, I'm I'm okay with that. But obviously, I like the diversity and I like having the diversity. And they're very health conscious as well in New York. So you can be very dirty in terms of your diet, but you can have. You know, there's a lot of great spots to have. You know, good food, and good healthy food. In Switzerland, I've changed. Like I said, you know, I, I cook a, a lot more. Uh, you know, I, I try to at least. And in terms of restaurants, it's way more. It's way more standardized. Having you know, having said that, we have, we have some. We have really, really great vegetarian and vegan restaurants, and some of the kind of pioneers in Europe. And uh, one is called Hiltel, for example. One I mentioned, Neutaverna stuff. And one is called Klee. So those are you know, they, they're really great. So in terms of my palate, I think it's become a lot more healthy for sure. Um, but also because I have more time, um, I think it's a function of that as well. Um, and um, and yeah, but it's definitely gotten less diverse. That's for sure. Well, for listeners at home, they can't see your background right now. You've got a really cool vintage Negroni uh, poster behind you for the Spagliato cocktail. Is that your preferred beverage? Yeah, actually, uh, you know, I, I used to be, uh, you know, a big, big lover of Negronis. I even have a website uh, called Sona and Negronis, where we basically, on an Instagram, where we basically have some of friends of mine that, and I, we go around the world and we just put up which ones are the best Sonas um, and which ones are the best bars for Negronis. And I think that was, you know, that's something we still do. Um, I've, you know, I, I drink a lot of Negronis still. Um, New York. Negroni week is uh, going on right now, I believe. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for me, it doesn't matter if it is or not. Every week so is I'm Negroni week for you. <laughs> Uh, I'll just drink at least once a week. Yeah, still. Um, uh, I fell in love with dirty martinis, so vodka based, and um, and I think those two with beer and wine is is really you know the only three drinks. Actually, no, vodka sodas is something I drink a lot now when I go to parties because a wrong Negroni is one of the most you know painful things in the world. What was the biggest mistake you saw with those fucked up Negronis? Was it too much vermouth, too little Campari? Too much vermouth. Yeah. It's always too much vermouth. So vermouth on a Negroni, it's, it's too much vermouth makes it makes it taste too sweet, obviously, and, and not right. And then the biggest one, though, is with uh, dirty martinis because people always pour it into the glass, mm-hmm. even though you should just pour it in and then swirl it around and then put it out again um, because it should just be that, that, that film, you know. Uh, it should just be pure vodka, to be honest, with some olive juice. I think vodka soda is my go-to if everything else fails. Yeah, there we go. Well, Campari, right, for a long time was not vegan. It was the cochineal beetle that they were uh, crushing up and putting in there, right, for the red color. Exactly, yeah. It's a cool drink. It's a cool story. It's a cool drink. A lot of heritage and a beautiful bottle. Does Blue Horizon, I know you guys are invested in a non-coffee bean coffee. Are there any other beverages beyond milk products? Are there any spirits or alcoholic beverages that y'all have looked at? Looking, looking at growing. Yeah, I think you mentioned Atoma, which is a cool investment. I, I don't think so. And and for the only reason being that we are focusing kind of on the highest importance products. So, you know, like we also don't invest much in energy drinks, for example, because they're already plant-based. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, coffee is a real, 
you know, coffee is a big, big part of agriculture today. And so is rice and stuff like that. So like things that have, you know, a big impact on the environment and we can make it more efficient and more um, and less harmful to the environment, we will look at it. But otherwise, um, yeah, we, we, we just enjoy it. Yeah, totally. Well, before I let you go, is there anything else that you want to let listeners know about um, minimizing food waste, uh, looking at food sustainability, about uh, dirty martinis and Negronis? What, what else would you like to let listeners know? <laughs> Look, Negroni's, Dirty Martinis, vodka is always a good idea. No, but I think when it comes to our food system, it's what people don't realize. It has the second biggest impact on the environment of the energy. So it's it's 70% bigger impact on transportation. Within the food system, 50% is due to animal agriculture, and that goes throughout the value chain. I'm not saying eat alternative proteins, but try it. You know, give it a shot. Uh, If you don't like it, try some other products. And otherwise, just try to minimize meat because it's, first of all, it's healthier for you. And second of all, I think it's really what we need to do in order to have a sustainable world over the next couple of years and the future. And it's a switch to step by step. And again, it's not about going from, I didn't go one to a hundred during the week. I, I stopped eating meat for lunch and I stopped eating meat for dinner. And it's really not difficult at all. And if you have a cheat day, you have a cheat day, it's fine. Um, but try to just reduce like shitty meats, shitty seafood bad eggs and milk that's too cheap because it shouldn't be that cheap. Animal protein shouldn't be that cheap. (laughs) And there's a reason why they are. Awesome. If people want to learn more about what Blue Horizon's up to, is there an Instagram or a website that you want to let people know about? Yeah, absolutely. We have, uh, it's called bluehorizon.com. Check it out. Uh, We also have a newsletter. We have, you know, the website is also cool because we brought out two reports together with BCG, a big consultancy, one of the biggest consultancies out there to really review, um, you know, our space. It's very alternative protein based, you know, obviously we do more than that, but it's, I think it's a great start to kind of understand the market of where it's going, where we think it's going. And also we did, you know, surveys with more than 4,000 people about exactly the questions that you were asking today uh, across the globe. So it's really insightful if you want to understand the space more. Obviously, you know, there's a lot going on. That if, if I were to speak again in a year's time, I think we have, we have very different conversations again. Love it. So it's a very ever evolving uh, market, but it's super exciting and I think it's going in the right direction. Love it. Cool. Mateo, thank you so much for joining us uh, on By the Glass. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. Good to speak to you. Bye-bye.